the most beneficial parenting style. And this is research now that has been done over many, many decades in many different ways. So it's not just an idea that, oh, this is a good way of parenting. The best, most healthy approach is called authoritative parenting, which is a blend of warmth and support along with expectations and boundaries. And that's what we're looking for there. When we veer too much to one side or the other, that's where we get into problems. Authoritarian parents are the ones who are like, my way or the highway, do this because I said so. Here's all the rules, you know, a lot of like firmness around that. So they have high expectations and they set boundaries, but they're actually not very warm or supportive. And that leads to problems down the line for kids. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest is Dr. Nicole Birkins. As the only doctoral licensed clinical psychologist with advanced degrees in psychology, education, and nutrition, she is also a mother of four. Dr. Nicole Birkins is the world's leading holistic child psychologist. She has dedicated her 22 plus year career to providing parents with simple, effective, and research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so they can reach their highest potential. So Dr. Birkins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped. I'm super excited to, to dive into this with you. I have a lot of parents listen to my podcast, a lot of future parents. And I guess a, a good place for us to start is what are the most common questions you get? If you had to break it down to like the three most common questions you get in your role as a child psychologist, like what are they? Yeah, and we could sort of break that down to pre-COVID and and you know during COVID. But I think that you know the the biggest questions are first of all around how do I effectively parent my child when they're struggling, having behavioral outbursts, you know, having tantrums, being angry, like sort of those behavioral things. How do I effectively parent them? I think another big topic area that comes up particularly now is around helping kids manage anxiety. And then we get into the issues of things like how do I manage screen time in healthy ways with my kids? How do I manage, you know, getting my kids to eat healthier? How do I get my kids outside to play? So sort of that category of like, how do I get my child to do more things that are healthy for them and less of the things that aren't? Okay. So let's, let's start there and let's unpack each one of those. Cause I think this is going to be amazing for people to hear. So let's, let's start with tantrums and managing kids when they're struggling. Let's start with like your, your advice to parents on how to properly to the best of their ability parent when a kid is struggling and maybe like some of the biggest mistakes that parents might make that they don't even realize that they're doing in the midst of helping to manage their kid during times of chaos. Yeah, this is a super important question that applies to any parent, regardless of the age of your child, regardless of whether your child has 
you know, a, a disability or a diagnosed issue or not. This is something that we all deal with. And I think the really important but counterintuitive thing that we need to keep in mind as parents around this is that those tough moments with our kids are actually a time for us to be focusing on how we're managing ourselves much more than focusing on what we're trying to get the child to do. And so what I mean by that is if a child is, you know, distressed about something, melting down, having a tantrum, maybe it's an older kid who's, you know, upset and being resistive or yelling at us, often we go into this mode where our own distress and anxiety level goes up because oh my goodness, this kid is being resistive or this kid is melting down. I don't know what to do. And we start escalating with our emotions and behaviors, which just feeds this cycle with our kids where now, you know, they're worked up. Now we're getting worked up. Now they're getting more worked up. And and those are situations where most of the time parents on the back end of that, when they reflect on it, go, oh, that's not really how I wanted to handle that, or that didn't go well, or I'm constantly in this cycle. And so the thing that's really important to think about strategy-wise in those situations is to be really aware of your own emotions in those moments, what's being triggered and coming up for you are you, you know, tending to feel really anxious because, oh no, you know, what if this gets out of control and I don't know how to handle it? Or are you getting angry or are you feeling frustrated because, you know, you're in a rush? Being able to pause and identify what's coming up for me emotionally and then take some steps to manage your own feelings and behaviors, because when you can do that, number one, you keep yourself in a space mentally where you're going to be able to get through the situation with your child in a way that actually feels better to you and them and and works better. But the other piece about that that's so important is that children can only regulate themselves in the presence of an adult who is regulating themselves. So when we're able to keep our emotions in check to go, oh, wow, okay, I'm getting really, you know, frustrated or anxious here. When we can take some deep breaths, when we can, you know, repeat a mantra to ourselves, whatever it is that we do to manage our feelings and behaviors, that has this incredibly important effect of helping our child in that moment be able to bring their level of emotional intensity down and manage themselves better. So that's really a key piece. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. Parents will say like, well, what are the tools? What are the three steps? What are the strategies? It's like, well, first of all, we need to start with ourselves and where we are with our emotional and behavioral regulation. And that's really, you know, the important key. That makes so much sense because I think actions speak louder than words. And if you're somebody telling your kid to calm down, this is just in my own experience and my own research that they're going to be less likely to calm down if you're hyper emotional or you're just, you know, coming at them from a place of anxiety, coming at them at a place of anger or whatever. And then the kid's going to be confused because they're like, you're telling me to calm down, but yet you're not calm. So do you think that that yelling and raising your voice and those sort of things are totally counterproductive when parenting kids? I think that they are totally predictable some of the time. And yes, they are counterproductive. And I say that because I I give myself and every other parent out there a whole lot of grace of we 
screw things up more than we get it right, even with the best intentions. And that's normal. And that's okay. There's no such thing as a perfect parent and we're not going to get it right all of the time. So are there going to be instances where we sort of let our emotions get the best of us and we respond by, you know, yelling or threatening or whatever? Sure. But yes, it is counterproductive from the standpoint of it does nothing to help the child be able to better regulate their feelings and behaviors in the moment. It doesn't teach them anything. And we run the risk if we don't repair it afterwards of really having some breakdown in our relationship with our kids. If their experience with us is every time they're feeling out of sorts, out of control, like they can't manage things we're coming in and sort of adding fuel to that fire and telling them to pull it together and deal with it and, you know, stop embarrassing me. You, you know, shouldn't be doing this. Um, There's a breakdown in the relationship there. So when we do handle things in that way, and it happens to all of us, even me, and I do this for a living, it's important to repair that afterwards. When we are then back in our more rational, settled mind, you know, to go to our child and say, man, that was, that was tough. What happened back there? Wasn't it like, yeah, I didn't handle that in the best way. Here's what I wish I would have done. You know, I'm sorry that I didn't manage myself. Well, you were having a difficult moment. And then I was having a difficult moment. I didn't handle myself in the right way. And that's a powerful model for kids. Not only does it help to repair our relationship, with them in those moments, but it also provides an important model that as human beings, we screw this up sometimes. And there is an incredible amount of value in going to the person afterwards and initiating that repair. And kids who have the experience of parents doing that with them are much more likely not only to do that in their relationships as kids, but in their adult relationships as they get older, which is really important. So you talked about the importance of repair, like after a parent makes a mistake, either in the way they handled a situation or the way they treated their kids, and that that will teach the kids that parents make mistakes. And as long as they have this reconciliation process, it at least helps to strengthen that relationship. But you might hear some parents say at times, well, if I'm not yelling at my kids or if I'm not like really holding the line that I'm just enabling them. Like, how do I set a boundary without coming across too firm, without being a pushover? So what has been some of your best tips that you give to parents when coaching them on how to set a boundary that's, that's coming from a place of love and not out of a place of anger, resentment, or even enabling? Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic, and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. This includes Organifi green juice, which I am now using in my smoothies, either after a workout or for a great on-the-go snack. It's loaded with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Cutting down on caffeine is a big initiative of mine as we head into the new year, and Organifi's red juice is gonna help me do just that. It's basically a superfood fruit punch that gives me a jolt of energy without the caffeine and it only has two grams of sugar. If you aren't into smoothies, don't worry. Organifi products are super easy to mix and you can add one scoop to a glass of water. So go to www.organifi.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. 
Yeah. And actually, when we get angry and resentful, it's usually because we haven't been clear about setting boundaries. <laughs> um, and I'm big on boundaries. Boundaries are important. Kids need us to set and maintain consistent boundaries around all kinds of things. So I think there's a, you know, I'll just step back and say, I think there is a misconception in, uh, you know, among a lot of parents that when we're talking about the emotions of things, or we're talking about, you know, managing things in whether we call it, you know, a positive parenting way, a conscious parenting way, you know, there's all sorts of terms now around that. And you get a certain number of parents who go, well, you know, kids need to learn to deal with the real world and that's not going to prepare them and, you know, whatever. And actually the research shows that, that that's not true. What the research shows is that the most beneficial parenting style, and this is research now that has been done over many, many decades in many different ways. So it's not just an idea that, oh, this is a good way of parenting. The best, most healthy approach is called authoritative parenting, which is a blend of warmth and support along with expectations and boundaries. And that's what we're looking for there. When we veer too much to one side or the other, that's where we get into problems. Authoritarian parents are the ones who are like, my way or the highway, do this because I said so, here's all the rules, you know, a lot of like firmness around that. So they have high expectations and they set boundaries, but they're actually not very warm or supportive. And that leads to problems down the line for kids. On the other hand, we don't want to be too permissive. Permissive parents are the ones who are like, you know, very, very warm and supportive, but no boundaries or expectations. Right. And so what we're looking for is a blend of those where, yes, we have expectations we hold kids to them, we set boundaries, but we have a level of warmth and support around that. And so what that looks like is, you know, setting firm rules and boundaries around things. Let, let, a great example would be, let's say I've got, you know, a four-year-old who is, you know, getting really angry and upset because I said, it's time to put the toys away. And the four-year-old starts throwing, you know, toys around, trying to hit me, whatever. Here's what a boundary looks and sounds like in that situation. I'm going to stay very calm and pretty quiet, but I'm going to be very firm. And I'm going to say, I understand you're upset. I won't let you hurt me. And then I'm going to contain that child or move the toys or do whatever to hold to that boundary. But I'm not going to be screaming at the child. You know, you need to stop right now. I can't believe you're doing that. Or you better stop or I'm going to send you to your room. That's too much the other way. So it looks like this. Hey, I acknowledge and empathize with how you're feeling. You're upset because I said it's time to put these away. Yeah, we all get disappointed sometimes. And I will not let you throw the toys at your brother. I will not let you bite me. I will not let you, you know, X, Y, or Z. And then firmly, but calmly enacting that boundary. And, you know, that we can take throughout, you know, the developmental stages um, with kids, you know, with teenagers. My kids are 15 through 21 now. So I've got older ones in my house, but it looks and sounds similarly just around different issues, right? If my son is really upset with me because I said no to something or, you know, whatever, you know, I'm going to hold a boundary with that. I, I understand you're upset. I won't talk to you about this while you're yelling. Right. And then I'll walk away if I need to, right. I'm staying calm 
And I'm empathizing with how he's feeling, but I'm also going to set a firm boundary around what's healthy and appropriate there. So hopefully those examples give people some ideas of what that looks like in real life. Sure. And I, I want to dive into a couple more things you brought up. And one is you see, you have this overarching theme on the importance of parents controlling their own emotions and regulating themselves during these times of chaos. But a lot of people haven't done the work on themselves to be able to practice emotion regulation, or they haven't done things like breath work or meditation. And I think sometimes when you mention this stuff to parents, especially you have four kids. So when you you mention it to a parent, who's got multiple kids, they're, they're married, they may have a job and they have so much going on. They're like, I don't have time. I need to, to put all this effort into my kids. And they end up, I think, in turn, self-sabotaging themselves. So what advice do you have for a mom or a dad or somebody who's really trying to get better at managing their emotions, but they just don't feel that they have the time to do so? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's recognizing that the work you do on yourself in that area is some of the best work you can do for your kids. <laughs> so that's the first thing is reframing that idea of, well, if it's not something specific to my child, then it's not helping them or my parenting. And that's not true. Some of the best things we can do for our kids is working on our own issues. You know, and while things like therapy and taking meditation courses and going to yoga and exercise, like there's so many of those things that yes, are valuable. And I encourage parents to do that. You don't have to do those things in order to get better at this. There's a lot of really quick in the moment strategies, like just pausing before responding, counting slowly, you know, backwards from 10 before you say whatever it is that you're going to say to your child, just focusing on pausing and taking three deep breaths in through your nose and you know out through your mouth. I encourage parents to have a mantra around that, that they can just remind themselves in the moment when their child's having a hard time and their initial instinct is their anxiety, their anger, whatever it is, starts to really well up in them to pause, put their hand on their heart and remind themselves it can be something like, you know, he's a good kid having a hard time, or we're both doing the best we can. Just that physical orientation of hand on the heart, deep breath, remind yourself of that. Just putting that pause there allows us to respond in a way that's going to be more helpful as opposed to just impulsively reacting when those emotions come up. So those are some examples of just really simple things that parents can do right then in the moment. And as you practice with that and you consistently work with that, those things get easier to do. You, you have to think about them less and you notice yourself being less impulsive in your own responses to your kids. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time. It does require some awareness and some desire to perhaps handle some of these things a little bit differently, but I find that when parents have a curiosity or a desire to see what else they might be able to do that would be more effective and they develop some awareness around, you know, what's going on for them, it doesn't have to take um, a lot of work to shift these dynamics. Yeah. And I, I talk about often like reattaching behavior to emotion. And if your initial emotion as a parent is to just react, 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 or yell or scream or get anxious or whatever it is, then that's going to be like your normal. But if you can somehow, like you said, in that moment, shift that and start to practice these 
breath work techniques or the counting or whatever. And then over time that will become your new normal for when a behavior or a situation like that occurs. I want to get into the, the last thing on this, this first subject of managing kids when they're experiencing discomfort or distress. I think I want to talk about failure. And that's a big thing now that you hear a lot of people talking about, like, is it okay to let kids fail? Are parents coddling their kids too much? You hear now about helicopter parenting and the parents being so overbearing in a way to protect them from danger. But in reality, it could end up hurting them long-term in the end. So what's your view on kids with failure? Like, do you think that there's a practical way for parents to be able to blend it so that they're not being super lenient? but also at the same time, they're having like correct rules and boundaries around that. I think failure is an incredibly normal life experience, whether you're a kid or an adult. And if we think that our job as parents is to protect our kids from ever experiencing failure or feeling the emotions that come up when we fail at something, I think that's a real problem because it's actually not our job as parents to protect our kids from the experience of failure, from making mistakes, from having challenges or hardship. That's not our job. Our job is to help them understand how to think about those experiences, understand the emotions that happen with those and become more resilient to get through them. That's our job. And that is really hard for a lot of parents because when our kids are having a hard time, when they are failing at something, when they're feeling all of the uncomfortable feelings that come along with failure and mistakes, disappointment, frustration, embarrassment, shame, whatever it might be, guess what? That triggers all of that in us and our entire history of mistakes and failures and all of that. And we become very uncomfortable. And so really what's going on when parents are, you know, what we would call helicopter parents or even like we call them like lawnmower or snowplow parents now, like when a parent is doing everything in their power to allow their child to avoid and not have to deal with any failure experience, that's actually not about the kid, that's about us as the adult. That's about our discomfort being so high that we can't allow our kid to have that because it triggers too much in us. So again, we come back to us needing to deal with our own discomfort around seeing our child struggle and fail and realize that our job is not to protect them from that, our job is to prepare them for that and help them sit with and navigate and ultimately understand that they can make it through the difficult feelings that come with failure, with mistakes, with those kinds of things. Yeah. It's hard, right? Cause there's so many parents that they just want to see their kids to succeed. They want right. to have them be happy and, and everything yeah. else, everything that they can to make sure that they do that when it comes to you know, protecting them from failure or making sure they make a certain team or talking to a teacher when they get that bad grade. But in reality, like you said, like long-term, they're inevitably not going to be able to protect their kid from failing. Yeah. It's so, it's so true. And I think, you know, one of the biggest misunderstandings that so many parents today have 
Um, and I, I will say that I think particularly for parents in the millennial generation, I see this, and I think there's a lot of sociocultural factors and generational factors of why that is, but they think that their job as a parent, that they're doing a good job as a parent, that they're being a good parent if their child is happy. And here's the reality. It is not our job as a parent to make sure our kid is happy. Whether a child is happy or not, that's their job to figure out. Our job is to provide guidance, to provide healthy boundaries, emotional support, and preparing them and helping them through the full range of emotional experiences. Some of the most depressed and anxious young adults I work with in my practice are now, you know, 17 to 25 year olds who their parent, one or both of them, parented them all through their lives to this point with the goal of keeping them happy, making sure they were successful, didn't have to deal with failures. And guess what? At some point, they are not with us all the time. They have to face that, right? And when does that typically happen? The reason we see so many young adults now with really difficult anxiety and depression to deal with is because they go off to college and there for the first time or into the workplace or whatever, they have to manage things themselves. They don't have someone there to protect them constantly. And they don't have the resilience or the coping skills to be able to manage that. So one of the healthiest, most important things we can do for our kids from birth through when they leave and go off and do their own thing is to help them learn how to feel and acknowledge and manage the full range of emotions that comes with, you know, being a human being. That's, it's just really, really important. And I think this is a great segue into the next topic, which is the increased amounts of anxiety that these kids are dealing with before the pandemic. I think anxiety rates were going up due to a variety of things, social media, screen time, just the way that the world's changing, just different things that have evolved. So outside of the parenting style that we were talking about before, like what have been some of the biggest factors that are contributing to children's anxiety now that you're seeing? Yeah, you're exactly right. Anxiety rates were going up exponentially even before the pandemic um, across all ages and stages of life. But particularly if we look at, you know, young kids through young adults and then the pandemic just exacerbated that. So we have unprecedented levels and, you know, the factors, there's so many factors. You mentioned some of them. One of them is the way that schools are set up and the expectations that are put on kids. Now we've got like sort of this one track that we push all kids into that the only way to be a successful student or successful in life is, you know, if you get XYZ grades, go on to a four-year college, whatever. And so we push kids onto paths that aren't necessarily you know, healthy or appropriate for them. And there's a lot of stress in the school environment. Digital lives, digital devices, 24-7 connection, particularly social media has been a huge factor for our preteens and our teens, particularly girls, but boys as well. It's not something that was present in the lives of kids up until this generation. And now it's constant and the data is showing there's so many pieces of that. I think the world also continues to move at a faster and faster pace. There's more and more expectations. 
Families are a lot busier. One of the good things the pandemic did was force families to slow down. And there has been great benefit in that because there's so many kids today, you know, who are chronically overscheduled. There's constant demands. They don't even have any time to just be, to, you know, have any time for decompression, those kinds of things. And then you couple that with an increase in just toxin exposure in the environment, a decrease in nutrient-dense foods, worse sleep that many kids are getting, all of those physiological factors that make kids much more likely to develop symptoms of anxiety. You put all that stuff together and what you get is a lot of anxious kids. So I want to go, I want to dive more into social media and we're going to get into that when we talk more about screen time, but as far as anxiety and as it relates to lifestyle, you mentioned nutrient dense foods, you mentioned sleep. You know, they say that you can get away with a lot more when you're younger, when it comes to what you eat and your movement, but obesity rates are, are going up exponentially in kids as well. So how important is lifestyle for kids and what are some practical ways that in a, in a world where everything is revolves around the screen and technology where kids can get more active and they can eat healthier foods and, and be more proactive about their health. Yeah. One of the things I'm really passionate about as a holistic psychologist, you know, not only having an advanced degree in psychology, but also nutrition and integrative health, the approach in mental health around things like anxiety is tended to be, well, get some, get your child in some counseling and maybe get them some medication, um, which would be great if the data showed it worked well. Unfortunately, that doesn't address anxiety for the vast majority of kids, or it doesn't fully address it. And, you know, that's what got me really interested in looking at these other pieces. These lifestyle pieces are hugely important, hugely important, especially for children with developing brains and bodies. There's no getting around it. What we feed our kids matters for every part of their brain development, and that includes the things that lead to issues like anxiety, depression, you know, behavioral challenges, those kinds of things. There's no getting around, you know, the fact that daily physical movement is critical for proper brain development, for emotional and behavioral regulation, for all of those pieces that sleep is critically important, way more so than for adults. Adults can get away with poor sleep. They already have a fully developed brain. It's not great for them, but you know, they can kind of go on with children. Even 30 minutes of lost sleep in a night has a significant negative impact on their learning, on their behavior, on their emotional regulation the next day. We've got good data on that um, to the point where we can take uh, even like a diagnosis like ADHD and research studies show that somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of kids who end up either diagnosed or medicated for ADHD actually have an undiagnosed and untreated sleep issue. That's how profoundly important it is for our kids at each stage of their childhood and development to be getting good quality sleep at night. So these pieces are really important. And what I find in my practice is even for kids who end up needing 
more interventions for their anxiety or their other mental health issues, these things absolutely form the foundation and nothing else is going to work as effectively if we don't have a good foundation of, are we getting the nutrients in this kid that they need to support their brain function? Are they getting movement? Are they getting good sleep? These things are just so critical. And when I was younger, and I think when many people who are listening to this were younger, the way for them to get their exercise wasn't anything super formal. You either you right. played sports, you went outside, you went for hikes, you right. you played just different games with your friends in the neighborhoods, and that's not as common now. So what is your advice for a parent who, say, has a kid that's just not as not into athletics? They just don't want to play sports. They're into other things, but you they still know the benefits of moving their body. Are there any simple things that you get parents to do to get that to get somebody who's not as interested in, in sports to move their bodies? Yeah. And they don't have to do sports. I mean, the research just shows any type of physical movement. So that could be walking the dog, going for a family walk after dinner, as you mentioned, going around, running around, playing outside, riding their bike through the neighborhood. It could be, you know, doing some exercise videos or lifting weights in the garage. It could even be, you know, some of these video games that require, you know, physical movement and activity. Those aren't my favorite for a variety of reasons, but we start where we need to start depending on the kid and their issues. And the key is that we prioritize getting the body moving and that those are built into the boundaries and expectations that we set and adhere to for our kids each day. And that means like, especially as we get into talking about things like how to manage screen time with kids, That is no longer about like having a set amount of time each day on screens that went out the window even before COVID with how much kids use devices for school and, you know, communication and all those things. But what we want to look at is prioritizing important non-screen activities before we use screens for our leisure time. So that might look like kids get home from school and the expectation is you're going to go outside and play for 30 minutes, you're going to have a nutrient dense snack and you're going to unload the dishwasher. Those are the expectations. Those are the things that need to happen. And then once those things are done, you can, you know, have some time on your video games or whatever it is that you're going to do. And it looks like being intentional about prioritizing the things that your kids need to be doing and deprioritizing the screens. And then in the rest of the time, let them, you know, have the screens, but you make sure that they've had those things that are really important, like movement and even beyond movement, just outdoor time. I and mean, we've got really good data on the benefits of just being outside in nature for kids, lower stress and anxiety levels, supports emotional and behavioral regulation. So that's why movement outside is sort of a double win, right? Go ride your bike outside, you get the benefits of nature and you know you get your movement in. Yeah, that's really important. And I think there's a, obviously a lot of parents that know the, the benefits of their kids eating better and moving their bodies, but the obstacle is they want their kids to eat more vegetables or eat more nutrient dense foods or move their bodies more, but the kid doesn't wanna do it. Yep. Just like, no, I don't want to eat that. Or I don't want to do this. Like, so if you're a like, say a parent's listening to this and they're in that situation, like what's your best advice for them to be able to bridge the gap. So it doesn't create more conflict based on the, the way that they handle it. Absolutely. I've written so much about this and, you know, it comes up on social media all the time. First of all, you don't force your child to do anything like you, you need to be really clear on what you're in control of and what your child is in control of. And the uncomfortable thing for parents is that there's a whole lot with our kids that we have no control over. 
So you're not going to force your kid to eat the broccoli or whatever, but here's what you do. First of all, you make sure that you yourself are a model of the eating behavior that you want to see in your kids. If you're walking around with your big gulp diet Coke and your potato chips and telling them that they need to sit down and eat their carrots, that's a problem. So the first thing is you model. The second thing is you control what you are in control of, which is what food comes into the house and what's served and when. That's a parent's job around eating. The parent decides what is served and when. The child's job is to decide whether they're going to eat and how much. And being clear on those roles is really important. Too often, we let kids take our job of deciding what's served. And we try to take their job of deciding how much they're going to eat. When we stay in our lanes, I decide what's served and how much. And when you decide whether you're going to eat and how much, that, that's where we need to be. So parents who come into you know, the clinic and complain that, oh, you know, my child, you know, just eats chips and ice cream, you know, all the time we've got these veggies, you know, in the drawer or whatever, but they're eating this stuff or, you know, we'll only eat the sugary cereal for breakfast. Here's the uncomfortable, but important question I ask, are they going outside the home to get these things? Or is the sugary cereal in your pantry? Is your pantry full of the chips and the ice cream? Because if you're bringing that stuff in the home in large amounts on a regular basis, you're inviting power struggles with almost any kid around that. And I'm not saying you should never bring those things into the home. But if your desire is for your kids to eat a more nutrient-dense breakfast and they open the pantry and there's Lucky Charms and Cocoa Krispies and Pop-Tarts and whatever, that's a you problem of you are choosing to drive your car to the store, purchase those items and bring them back and put them in your home. And of course your child's gonna want them. So if you want them to have a more nutrient dense breakfast, you get to decide what comes into the house. So if it's, you know, oatmeal and, you know, Greek yogurt with fruit to mix in or a protein bar or a smoothie or whatever, you get to decide that. They choose if they're gonna eat that or how much they're gonna eat. And those are the roles and that's how you start thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, I love how you're just bringing up this this theme that in order for your kids to change behavior or, or to act a certain way, it starts with us because otherwise it creates some level of cognitive dissonance with the kids when you're telling them not to eat junk food or you're telling them to exercise or mm-hmm. you know fill in the blank and you're not doing it yourself. So I love that you're talking about that. So let's talk about the big question. Let's talk about screen time. And we all know it's super addictive. There's a lot of research that's come out about that. And it's been talked about a lot, especially over the last couple of years. But so what's going on inside of a kid's brain when they're on a screen? Like, why is it so addictive for for, um, a kid to be on like an iPad or an iPhone or a computer to the point where they literally will throw a tantrum if you try to take it away from them? Yeah, there's a couple pieces of that. The one really big one is understanding a little bit of neurochemistry and understanding the neurotransmitter called dopamine, which is the rewarding feel good chemical uh, that we all love that is at the root of any sort of uh, addiction or if not even addiction, something that we do repeatedly, right? So we get a hit of dopamine uh, that's behind the sit why, you know, 
People play the lottery or gamble, or we get a hit of dopamine when somebody that we are interested in, you know, sends us a positive text, or a kid gets a hit of dopamine when they're playing a video game and they get to the next level. So we get these dopamine hits and the brain goes, oh, I like that. That feels good. I want more of that. And so we're driven to do those things over and over to get more of that. The problem is that over time, you need more and more intensity of whatever that thing is in order to get the same dopamine hit. And this is true of any type of addiction. And it's what we're seeing is an issue for device use for screen time with kids all the way to the point where we do have kids and adults who have legitimate addiction issues. Now it's not the majority of them. A lot of times we use addiction sort of like, uh, you know, my kid's addicted to electronics. And what we really mean is, well, you know, they would prefer to do that. They have trouble getting off of them, but there are children who truly are addicted. And so social media is particularly insidious for this because these platforms have all been very intentionally designed to work with our neurochemistry in a way that keeps us wanting to stay active on these platforms to get those dopamine hits, whether it's a like or a comment or a this or a that, they're intentionally designed. The people who design these platforms and the way that these apps operate um, very much understand the psychology and the neuroscience of it. And I think that's something a lot of parents don't realize. This isn't some sort of weakness in you or your kids. They're intentionally designed this way. And so we have to approach our use of them and our kids' use of them in a way that recognizes that, okay, these devices and these apps are intentionally designed to be addictive in nature, to help our neurochemistry get hooked on them. So how do we then intentionally expose our kids to these things and help them develop healthy ways of operating with them because it is important. Just saying you can't have it makes no sense. These um, technology is a part of our kids' lives. It's going to be, it's important and it brings a lot of benefits. The key is how do we help them develop a healthy relationship with technology and with these devices. And that starts with educating them on the fact that they are created to be addictive and we have to approach them in ways that doesn't allow ourselves to get sucked in in that way. Well, and I think it's tough for parents now because when people who are parents now, most, most of them, when they grew up, you know, technology wasn't either a thing or mental health and addiction and stuff like that just wasn't talked about. And now not only has the mental health issues and people gone up, but it's being talked about so much more. You're told that if you have, if you've overcome something to post about on social media and have, you know, talk about it and, and, and put yourself out there, which I think obviously is very beneficial, but parents, like they didn't have this when they were younger. So I know you've talked about how to the, the, the there's, there's such an importance in with parents teaching their kids how to have a, how to have a healthy relationship with screens. And it starts with them educating their kids about it. So what are some, some good first steps for parents to do to start to create this healthy relationship? I think, you know, first of all, it comes back to modeling. 
which is difficult because we're the first generation of parents raising kids in a 24-7 connected digital world. You know, to your point, like we can't look back on our own childhood. At least I can't. Some younger parents now can't. Those of us who are in our mid-40s or above, like I can't look back on my childhood and go, well, what was that like for me? Or how did my parents handle that? I didn't have a smartphone until well into adulthood. They just weren't things. So, you know, we can't look back to previous generations to see how that was handled. So we are figuring this out for ourselves, what it means as an adult to have a healthy relationship with these devices and apps at the same time as we're trying to guide our kids. So again, we need to be aware of for ourselves what's going on with that. What are we modeling intentionally or unintentionally? When I have parents really focus in on sort of tracking and being aware of how often they have their phone out or their computer out or whatever, when they're around their kids, most of them are appalled. It's just become so much a part of everything we do that we don't even realize it. So I think that's the first thing is awareness for ourselves as parents and then what we're modeling. I think the second piece is making intentional, developmentally appropriate decisions around when and how we give kids access to different kinds of devices and different types of apps. I see so many kids coming into the clinic now who are given a smartphone at elementary school age. By fifth grade, they have their own smartphone many with no restrictions, no parental controls, no screen time, you know, restrictions or anything set up on it. And I don't believe that these parents are intentionally trying to cause problems for their kids. I think that they are massively unaware and they are giving into the, oh, every other kid has this, or my kid needs this to communicate, or my kid wants this as opposed to thinking about what is really healthy and best here. In my clinical opinion, and the data backs this up, we shouldn't be thinking about a full-fledged smartphone for kids until they are in their teen years. And, you know, until they are showing a level of responsibility, of impulse control, of managing their life in a way that that can be safe and healthy. Now, That means we give them a lot of practice in the elementary and early middle school years of handling things like the family iPad with, you know, restrictions on it, of maybe using our phone with some supervision for some things, of using their computer for school and following the rules. We give them exposure and practice, but to me, handing a young child a smartphone with no restrictions, even if there are restrictions. It's like the equivalent of saying to a 10-year-old, here's a Ferrari and you don't even have your driver's license yet. And so we need to guide them along the way with educating them about what's appropriate and not appropriate. What are the dangers of things on here? Basic safety things around, you know, you don't send pictures to people you don't know. You don't give out your full name and address. You don't be on these chat forums, like educating them so that they can be aware and make safer decisions. Looking at apps before just giving kids access to them. 
There are a lot of apps out there now that can look educational or fun in nature that allow kids to access things that if parents knew, they would never give them access to. Understanding that porn is everywhere on the internet. And if you give your child access to an Instagram account or TikTok or whatever it might be, they 100% will be exposed to pornography, even if they don't intentionally go looking for it. And have you made the decision that they're ready for that? And have you educated them? And are you having ongoing discussions around how to handle that? What they might be exposed to, what they should do if that happens, how that could impact their future relationships. So there's a lot of conversation and ongoing guidance and dialogue that goes into helping kids develop healthy relationships with technology, healthy behaviors around it. And I think a lot of parents feel overwhelmed and like, oh, it's too much. So here, just have your device. I'm going to cross my fingers and good luck, which is all well and good, except that I see more and more kids who get into some real problems in their life, both on a practical level, safety level, as well as from a mental health standpoint, because they're not having the guidance and the conversations that they need. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of it just comes back to there's these extremes, right? I think there's one extreme that you could just let the kid use technology whenever they want. And the other extreme is I'm just going to take it away completely. And neither one are realistic because let's face it, we're heading into this right. metaverse, this world where technology is all around us everywhere. And I know you said that the idea of like limiting screen time to a certain like level of time per day is kind of you know, out the window a little bit, but are there any guidelines maybe that you could leave for parents and in, in time that, that might be healthy and optimal for a kid so that it doesn't impact their cognitive ability or ability to focus with school? Yeah. And I'm not suggesting you shouldn't set time limits. I absolutely do for my, um, you know, teenagers and when they were younger, but the, the idea, the recommendations and guidelines and, and the American Academy of Pediatrics is really one of the only you know, organizations over time that has come out with very formal research-based recommendations. It used to be, you know, none for really young kids, an hour for preschoolers, and then two hours total for elementary through high school. Well, that became irrelevant years ago because many kids come home from the end of a school day and they've already done more than two hours of screen time for school. So that's where I'm talking about, like having that kind of arbitrary limit doesn't make sense. But I, we think about it in terms of leisure time, right? So they're going to use it for school. They're going to need to use it even at home for homework or whatever. But we think about the amount of leisure time on that. And we think about what are the other things they need to be doing. So if I'm prioritizing for my kids that when they're home, like on school days, for example, they need to be doing their chores. They need to get their homework done. They need to do some form of exercise. They, they're they're going to, you know, come to the family dinner table and, you know, have dinner, those kinds of things. And I think about, okay, well, how much extra time is left then? And of that extra time, having a conversation with them about, you know, what do you think is a good healthy amount on school days versus on weekends or holidays and engaging them and thinking about that. And, you know, then coming to decision based on, your family's lifestyle, your kids' activities, what makes sense here? And that is different for a third grader as opposed to a 10th grader. You know, as kids are growing and getting into those high school years, we need to give them some more leeway for them to be able to practice and figure this out. 
Here's the key question in having these discussions with kids. And I am in favor of having discussions, not just arbitrarily saying, you know, I'm mom and I said you can only have two hours a day. You can do that, but there's not as much learning in that for your child. So sitting down and saying, what makes sense here? Here's all the other things that you need to get done. How much time do you think? Here's what I think. And then you come to an agreement. And when you come to an agreement on that, here's the question that I have parents ask kids and that I ask kids. How will we know if this is working? How will we know if this is not working? And that's really important because before we even embark on this plan of, okay, you're going to have four hours of you know, screen time a day on your iPad or phone or whatever, how will we know if that's working? Well, we'll know because you're getting all your other things done. You're not losing sleep. You're not totally grouchy and miserable to be around, right? How will we know if this is not working? Well, if you're not getting your homework done, if you're fighting and arguing all the time about putting your device down, if you're not, you know, getting good sleep, if you're, you know, irritable and whatever all the time. So that, that's a really good question for us and kids to think about. How will we know if this plan around screen time is working or not working? And that sets the stage then as a parent where if you need to come back and reopen that discussion because you don't feel like this is a healthy amount of time or that it's working, you can say, remember when we talked about that? Yeah, I'm seeing some of those things. Some of those things that we said would let us know if this plan wasn't working. Here's what I'm noticing. I'm wondering what you're noticing. And reopening the discussion that way, kids often know when they are engaging in unhealthy use of devices but of course, they're not going to bring that up. So they need us to bring it up and say, you know, here's the concerns I have. Here's what I'm noticing. Let's talk about this. And so hopefully that gives people some practical ideas for how to approach it. Well, so why do you think that that approach is so helpful? Do you think it's because it gives the kids a sense of empowerment? Does it give them a level of autonomy? Like, why do you think kids are so much more receptive to that type of conversation? Yeah. And sometimes they aren't and we need to have it anyway. Right. Sometimes kids, depending on their stage of development, I don't want to talk about this. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about it anyway. Or when you're ready to talk about it, that's when you'll be able to have some device access. Right. Cause I'm, I'm not just going to give that to you without having a conversation. I think it's empowering. And I think it teaches them a way of thinking about and being aware of their use and its impact on them that we want them to have as they grow up. Right. As an adult, I, want to be aware of what my behavior and uses of devices and how that's impacting me so that I can make changes as needed. And the way we help kids grow into being able to do that, we want them to be a young adult at college who recognizes that, oh, I'm spending a whole lot of time on Snapchat and video games and TikTok, and I'm failing my classes, I need to make some changes there. If we want them to be able to do that, we need to start that early in having those conversations and teaching them how to be aware of and think about those things. So that's why I think it's so important. And to your point, yes, it gives them a say, it helps them to feel heard and it approaches it in a more collaborative way that just builds that relationship as opposed to it being very much a, you know, you can't have it because I said so, which ends up backfiring when they do at whatever point in their life 
have the freedom to do what they want. Many of them, if they were raised with that kind of approach, will go way overboard the other way. And we want to try to avoid that. I want to talk more about the impact of social media as it relates to mental health and anxiety in teenagers. And like, as we've said, teenagers and their use of social media eventually will be inevitable and they'll be on these different platforms and it can have such a negative impact on their mental health if they're not careful. So like, like how can parents, if they're listening to this, they have a kid who comes home and it's just blatantly obvious that social media is negatively impacting their mental health. What are some ways to help mitigate that without just having them just delete all the apps? Yeah. So important because they do, they need to learn how to handle it. Again, if we don't use their childhood and their adolescent years as a training ground, they're sunk then when they get to adulthood. So I think the first is again, dialogue and conversation. Too many parents are afraid to have these conversations with their kids. And I see that, you know, when I have kids in for therapy and I bring it up and initiate a conversation between parents and kids and parents are super uncomfortable with it. Like, Oh, we don't talk about these things. And I'm like, right. And you need to, you need to be open with your kids in a supportive way about what you're noticing, not an accusing way. If you notice that your teenage daughter is coming home, um, you know, it is moody and irritable and down on herself. And maybe her eating habits have changed, whatever it might be. The way to approach that isn't in an attacking way of, see, this is what all these apps do to you. And, you know, look at this problem. That's not going to get you anywhere. But to sit down and say, you know, here's some things I'm noticing. And, you know, I've done some reading on this. And I know that this can happen for girls your age when they're using these apps. And I, you know, I just want to talk about that. And I wonder what you're noticing. And to even go through and say, you know, just like open your TikTok. Let's take a look at what's in your feed here and have some conversation around that together. Like, oh, wow. You know, if I had looked at a bunch of stuff like that, when I was 13, I would have felt really bad about myself too. So having conversation, having dialogue, making them aware of the risks, helping them feel not alone. Oh yeah. Did you know this happened? You know, boy, I just read, um, you know, an article the other day about how this, you know, X, Y, Z thing is happening to so many girls your age. You know, and I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that's an issue for you? Raising those things, expressing those concerns, having supportive dialogue about it, and then looking at what seems to be working and not working. Some specific tips and things that we need to teach these young people, having a diverse feed. And we see this more and more, especially in the last two years. And there's issues now. I did some media interviews a couple of weeks ago, a couple of research papers written specifically about TikTok and young women and the development of functional tick disorders and seeing a huge increase in teen and young adult girls coming into neurology clinics with all the symptoms of a tick disorder, but they don't actually have a tick disorder. Well, what they discovered was that these girls in TikTok had just in their feed video after video after video of people with Tourette syndrome, people with tics. And again, these, these platforms have been great for reducing stigma and allowing for more awareness of this. But what these physicians and researchers and psychologists discovered is that when young girls are inundated with video after video after video for hours a day, what happens? They begin to actually develop 
some of those symptoms of what they're seeing. Now that's just one example, but we see that a lot with eating disorder issues and body image issues. If your daughter can happen to boys too, but more so to girls, if you go through these social media feeds with your daughter and they're just seeing image after image after image of very photoshopped, you know, teen peers of movie stars of whatever that is having a significant impact on their understanding of what human bodies look like, their understanding and their feelings about themselves. And we see a lot of disordered eating and other kinds of things. So we need to be aware. We need to be having those conversations, helping them to diversify their feeds, helping them to think about what kind of time limits on each of these apps might be helpful to you. I was really surprised when I raised that a while ago with my daughter. She's 15 now, and we had just given her access to Instagram. And, you know, I said, what, what do you think would be a good amount of time per day for you to have um, on that particular app? She thought about it. And, you know, most parents would say, oh, my, my kid will say, you know, 24 hours or whatever. And she was like, probably not more than an hour. She said, if I was spending more than an hour a day on Instagram, I think that would be a problem. And I said, okay, great. And what a lot of parents don't realize is you can go into either the screen time controls or the parental controls on these devices, and you can set them up for time limits on individual apps. And you should be doing that and having conversations with kids about that. Um, so that's just one example. But I think time limits on specific apps, talking about what's in the feed, and ultimately having this ongoing dialogue about how did, what do you notice? How do you think this is impacting you? You know, and, and, and a great way to bring that up, especially with preteens and teens, is to just be like, hey, I saw this article or I saw this on, you know, CNN or I, you know, gosh, I was at lunch and somebody brought this up and I haven't thought about that before. I wonder what you think about that. You know, do you see that's a great opening to start just some of that dialogue with kids around those issues. It's such a such great points you just made. And you've you've given the audience, you've given me so much advice to to kind of take home and and be able to either implement for people that are listening that are gonna be a parent. Maybe you're gonna they're gonna implement something if they are parents and they're trying to do a do a better job of improving the relationship that they have with their kids. So I guess my last question is let's just say somebody runs into you at a coffee shop and they have 30 seconds with you or 20 seconds. And they ask you like, what's your, like, I'm a parent and I'm struggling with my kids or I'm getting ready to have a kid. Like, I want to know, like, what's the best advice, like one piece of advice you could give that other than them working on themselves that will set themselves up for success long-term as a parent, what would that be? I think it would be to above anything else, because you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to feel like you screw up a lot to focus on intentionally engaging with your kids at least for a brief amount of time each and every day, whatever that might look like, whether it's five minutes of putting your own device down and sitting down on the floor and building with blocks, or it is spending some uninterrupted time doing an activity they enjoy or reading a book or watching a movie together or going for a walk. I think that that above everything else that we do, that intentional, focused, mindful engagement, even if it's not for a long period of time each day, goes so far to building a healthy, 
trusting, strong relationship with our kids. And when we do that, it makes everything else easier. So well said. And and I love that. And I think people are definitely going to take that and implement that into their lives. Uh, Dr. Birkins, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing conversation. If people want to connect with you and find out more about your work, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So my website is drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. They can also find me. I'm most active on Instagram um, and Facebook at Dr. Nicole Birkins. Got a wonderful community of parents there. If this resonates and you want to, you know, come along and um, get some more info and just community and support around that, those are great places to do it. And then uh, my podcast is The Better Behavior Show, where we dive into all of these kinds of topics too episodes a week and people can find that on their favorite podcast player. Amazing. I will make sure to plug where people can find you in the show notes. And for those listening, what I'd love you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Dr. Birkin said about how to help regulate your kids if um, they're struggling or something she said about mental health or anxiety, or perhaps it was something that we talked about as it relates to screen time. And what I want you to do is share that takeaway and tag Dr. Birkins, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.